Well, do turn back to Judges chapter 10. Uh, It's quite a chunk that was read because Old Testament narrative uh, is quite often fairly chunky if you're to get the whole story. Uh, And we come to, in some ways, the most perplexing of all the stories, or one of the most perplexing in the book of Judges, and that really makes it one of the most perplexing in the whole of the Old Testament, the story of Jephthah. Now, the setting... Uh, Chapter 10, verse 6, is more of the same and yet slightly different. More of the same in the sense that there's a similar pattern. Verse 6, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Well, we recognize that. And they served the Baals, the Ashtaroths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, pretty well any god going other than the Lord. Uh, And as a result, they came under judgment. Uh, This time, it was a combination, verse 7, of the Philistines and the Ammonites. Uh, We're going to think about the uh, the Ammonites on this occasion. Uh, And then, of course, you get the Philistines, uh, which is what we're going to look at in Samson. Uh, And uh, they uh, look at the the language. Uh, The Lord sold them into their hands. Verse 8, that year, they shattered and crushed. For 18 years they oppressed. Uh, End of verse 9, they were in great distress. There are four different Hebrew words which are all telling us that they were in acute, uh, acute dismay and trouble. And it went on for 18 years. And then verse 10, they cried out to the Lord at last, and the Lord responds. What is slightly different about this uh, scenario is firstly, the unusual amount of detail about the gods they turned to in, in, in verse 6. Uh, it's as though they were more lost than ever. Uh, and then the Lord's response. Um, the Lord's response is almost in two stages. Because to begin with, with impeccable logic, the Lord reminds them that he would delivered them many times before, but they have forsaken him despite that and gone after other gods. So verse 14, go and cry to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you. The logic uh, was impeccable. Uh, and the Israelites are so, uh, so completely battered by their circumstances that they seem to be more desperate than ever. Verse 10 when the Lord, they cried out, the Lord said basically no. Verse 15, but the Israelites said, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. And it wasn't just words. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And we read this wonderful phrase uh, that the Lord could bear their misery no longer, impatient over Israel's misery. Uh, so just as they seem from verse 6 to be more lost than ever, uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 15 and so on, they seem to be more desperate than ever. And the Lord's heart, there is a divine passion here. He could bear their misery no longer. And we need to remember that that's the background of this story. Uh, God's passion uh, is at work. Uh, at the end of chapter 10, Uh, The armies of the Ammonites uh, gather, uh, and in verse 17, and camped in Gilead, and the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. There were various Mizpahs. Nobody's quite sure which Mizpah this is, but it's probably in Gilead. The action basically takes place in the part of Israel, the far side of the River Jordan, Uh, if you, what's the right word? East of the Jordan, that's right, that side. Uh, And that's where Gilead was, and that's where the Ammonites gathered, and that's where Israel gathered, or at least the people of of Gilead. And their big issue at the end of chapter 10 is who is going to lead them. Whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be head of all those living in Gilead. So suddenly, chapter 11, verse 1, we're introduced to the man who they're looking for. And we find... Uh, that he's surprised, but when he's not a surprise to begin with. What sort of man are they looking for? Well, chapter 11, verse 1, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. Now, that's quite a promising uh, CV. Um, he's a mighty warrior. Well, that's what they're after. Uh, 
and he's probably a son of a man of standing. He's called Gilead, which is the name of the whole uh, tribe. But mind you, there might have been quite a lot of Gileads, but it's quite probable he was a man uh, of standing. However, we then discover that this man isn't quite the uh, ideal candidate. Uh, he is a man who's been rejected, and rejected already for two reasons. One, the circumstances of his birth were shameful, for his mother, we read at the end of verse 1, was a prostitute. Uh, and it indicates the level to which Israel had sunk in those years when they were worshipping all these gods of the nations around. Most of these uh, uh, gods were, well, they were part of fertility cults and they involved cult prostitution. And it is very possible that this, his mother, was a cult prostitute. So that's a pretty grim uh, background uh, for him to have. A shameful birth and then a history, an experience of rejection. Because uh, Gilead's wife also brought him, bore him sons, verse 2. And when the family grew up, and presumably Gilead himself died, uh, when Gilead died, Jephthah's protection disappears and his, his half-brothers aren't going to have it. Uh, they're not going to have any divide, any inheritance uh, with him because, verse 2, you're the son of another woman. Uh, and you uh, see later on in verse 7 that it wasn't just his, his half-brothers, his family that rejected him. Jephthah is speaking in verse 7 to the leaders of Gilead. He said, didn't you hate me and drive me from my mother's house? Um, so this man has a shameful birth and a history of rejection, and he ends up in a place called Tob, end of verse 5. It's just beyond the boundary of Israel. He actually has to flee Israel altogether. Uh, he's an outlaw, uh, and he gathers round him. It's, well, what's described here is a group of adventurers. Um, uh, he's, he's with other like men of like sort, really. Uh, some people hold this against him, suggesting that from the beginning he's a thug. Um, that's a bit harsh. Uh, David had a similar band around him in 1 Samuel 22 too, uh, and um, we don't view him in quite such a negative light. But what is clear is this was a rejected man. And yet, well, yet he's chosen. Uh, he's chosen, it has to be said, in desperation. They've had 18 years uh, of Ammonite oppression. And the leaders of Gilead who were involved in driving him out uh, changed their minds. Verse 4, sometime later when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. We are that desperate. We need you. Uh, you see, Jephthah, as we said, was a mighty warrior, verse 1. Uh, that term has appeared previously in the book of Judges. We, we kind of skipped, you may have noticed, over the story of Gideon. There's lots of good stuff in Gideon. I've got nothing against Gideon. It's just that Judges is a, big, is a big book and you have to make some choices. But when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, who's grinding wheat in a, in a little wine press because of fear of uh, uh, of, of the Midianites. Um, the Lord says to him, Hail, or greetings, mighty warrior. It's the same word that is used for words that are used of Jephthah. The difference is nobody thought of Gideon as a mighty warrior at that point, least of all Gideon himself. Um, whereas in this case, everybody realized that Jephthah was a mighty warrior. So he, he, was, he was clearly well known. That's, that's why the Gileadites went to get him. It was common knowledge. And in this context, the mighty warrior, despite his history, is the choice of the people of Gilead. And in the context of the Lord's passion, you begin to realize that he is also God's choice. Uh, the one whom men have rejected, God has chosen. Uh, and he's rejected yet chosen, and we need to add willing. Um, now, <clears throat> not initially, when they come to him, uh, he re quite reasonably says in verse 7, well, didn't you hate me and drive me? Why have you come to me now when you're in trouble? And they say, nevertheless, we are desperate for you to come. 
uh, and there's a bit of negotiation and eventually he does go now there is a striking parallel uh, between the way the people of Israel had treated the Lord and the way they treated Gilead. Uh, that parallel is, is really quite close. That's why you need to read the bit we read in chapter 10 as well as reading chapter 11 to get Jephthah and his context. Um, as long ago as 1708, when Matthew Henry was uh, <coughs> writing his commentary, uh, he uh, notice this uh, parallel and most commentators draw it out you see what happened in chapter 10 was that Israel had rejected the Lord verse 6 they forsook the Lord and only verse 6 in great distress um, uh, um, in verse 8 uh, and onwards in great distress verse 10 they finally call out to the Lord and the Lord says basically why have you come to me verse 14 you've turned your back on me Israel persists in, in calling out to the Lord in verse 15, and finally the Lord responds. And that all happens again in the same sequence, but with Jephthah in chapter 11, verses 2 to 3, he is rejected. Only in great distress do the men of Gilead cry out to him in verse 6. Jephthah, verse 7, says, why come to me? You didn't want me. Uh, verse 8, Israel persists. Uh, verse 11, Jephthah responds. And I think we're meant to see the parallels. There's an awful lot in Judges that is constructed very carefully. And when you begin to kind of see, the, see things like this, you realize it's very carefully put together. So the rejected God uses a rejected man to save his unworthy people. And he is willing. And I think there's a godly willingness about Jephthah. It's not just a grasping willingness. Some people... Um, tend to read the judges backwards. Uh, they do that with Samson. Everybody knows Samson and Delilah and all that story. And so everything about Samson becomes negative. Uh, and people can do the same with Jephthah. Uh, and they kind of decide that Jephthah in verse 6 and onwards is basically grasping. They invite him in verse 6 to be a commander. And he kind of negotiates because he wants to be more than a commander. Uh, and verse 8 uh, they said, uh, you will be our head. In verse 9, he says, will I really be your head? And they say, well, you will be. Uh, so some people suggest that Jephthah is kind of saying, well, I don't just want to be a commander. I want to be head afterwards. But I don't think that's fair. Look at the last verse of chapter 10. Uh, Whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be the head of all those living in Gilead. That was the deal from the beginning. That was always what was intended. And Jephthah had good reason to be a bit cautious and to clarify the terms. And will you notice in verse 9 that the first person in the story to mention the Lord is Jephthah. Verse 9, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? He anticipates the Lord as the one who will give the victory. He's not putting himself as the great victor. Right from the beginning, he anticipates the Lord giving the victory. And he having mentioned the Lord, then verse 10, the elders of Gilead mentioned the Lord. The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So verse 11, he goes with them, meets up with all the people, and look at the end of verse 10, and he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Um, it seems pretty, that he's pretty anxious that, that the Lord is, is, is uh, sort of in the deal uh, and, uh, and on side. He's, he's, everything is, is, is repeated before the Lord. Um, so he's, I think it's a godly willingness. So here is this man, the man who had been rejected, who is now chosen and willing. Now, when we think in the big scale, uh, God has chosen another deliverer who was rejected, indeed despised and rejected by men, Isaiah 53. Uh, 1 Peter 2.4, rejected by men but chosen by God. The Lord Jesus was a rejected one. Uh, men rejected him. We, by nature, have rejected him. We come to faith with a history of having rejected him. Uh, and he is the one who is willing to take us on and help us. 
and to do his father's will. So that there is some sort of sense in which we see in Jephthah some fine qualities from the very beginning. And also, we're just reminded that the sort of people God uses are not necessarily the people that immediately uh, seem to play the part. Uh, and at Christmas, you know, people are pretty happy about little baby born in Bethlehem, all the Christmas razzmatazz and carols and all the rest of it. Um, and they're kind of... Uh, they're kind of happy about that, but they don't realize that this is the one who also will be rejected. He's born into a world where he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering, and they end up crucifying him. He's the rejected one. Uh, the, the, the kind of response to Jesus as a baby, when apparently he doesn't seem to be able to you know, threaten anybody, it doesn't tell you human heart. The human heart is what they did to that baby. Um, and, and yet he is the one who came to save us. So here is the rejected one, yet chosen and willing, and we see something of a, uh, just an anticipation of our Savior. Secondly, he's a warrior, yet restrained and dependent. Jephthah is a warrior. That, that's the first thing we hear about him. He is a mighty warrior. And that's why they go and get him. He's appealed to because he's a mighty warrior. Verse 8, they say, come with us to fight the Ammonites. Verse 9, you, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites. That's the whole point. He is taken there to fight Ammonites. We're expecting fireworks. That's the job. He's going to lead Israel into battle. He's at last come. There he is. He's going to lead them into action. Not so. Not so. Verse 12, then... Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king. Now, we're not expecting that. That's not what the, history, the kind of direction of the story would expect, lead us to expect. He sends a query. Yeah, he says, uh, what, have you, do, what do you have against us that you've attacked our country? And he receives an answer, verse 13, and then he sends back a reply. And we're not just told he, told he sent a reply. I mean, we could have just had it in one verse. You know, Jephthah then replied, and the Ammonite king uh, ignored it. No, in verse 14 to 27, tells you word for word the entire reply he sent. And it's a long reply. Uh, and God gives it to us in full. Well, why would he do that? Well, somehow there's something for us here. You see, Jephthah shows a detailed knowledge of Israel's history. The whole story kind of slows down. We're expecting to go into battle, and instead we get prolonged negotiation. Um, a detailed knowledge he shows of Israel's history and of the scriptures, because this is the account that is drawn from Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And he explained that how when Israel first uh, came towards the promised land, they tried to avoid con uh, conflict with Edom and Moab, and they were refused passage by the Amorite kings. They went all the way round Edom and Moab because they weren't allowed through them. And then they tried to go through the Amorite, the lands the Amorite kings controlled, which are the disputed lands in this case. And one of Jephthah's point was that this land was never Ammonite. It was Amorite. And the Lord gave them victory over Sion, uh, king of the Amorites, uh, uh, and in verse uh, 21, the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his men into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. So the land wasn't taken from the Ammonites. It was taken from the Amorites, and it was given by the Lord. Now, later on, Moab, which was just to the south, passed into Ammonite control, which is what, what they are now. But in the years, one of his other points is the uh, the Moabites had not quarreled with Israel for 300 years over this land that they took from the Amorites just north of Moab. So you, you get the point. He, he says, uh, verse 27, I have not wronged you, but you are wronging me. And he spells out all the reasons. So Jephthah is not a man who just you know, wants to beat up everybody in sight. He's a man of restraint. He's a man of diplomacy. He's a man who knows his Old Testament. That's interesting. That becomes very important. Of course it's important. He is restrained. And he is also dependent. That is, he is looking to God. He is looking to God. You see, Jephthah appeals to the Ammonites, verse 24, 
in terms of their God. You see, the Lord, the God of Israel, verse 23, has driven out the Amorites before his people. Um, Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God Chemosh gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Now, some people kind of suggest that Jephthah is kind of has a low view of the God of Israel. He's just one among other gods, and you've got your God and we got our God, and you know they're going to kind of slug it out against each other. Uh, but I don't think that's that's fair on Jephthah. He's using an argument in terms they would understand. But what he thinks about it is revealed in verse 27. You see, at the end, he doesn't say, well, you know, let Chemosh and let Yahweh fight it out together. He says, let the Lord, the judge, only one judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. So he's very clear all the way through who's really in control. You see, back in verse 9, he said... Suppose the Lord gives them to me. In verse 27, he says the Lord is the judge who's going to decide this dispute. So I don't think he has a low view of the God of Israel. Uh, I think he has a high view of the God of Israel. Uh, he is a man who may be a warrior, but he's restrained. And not only that, he's dependent. He's looking to the Lord. And verse 29 then says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. That's uh, a very clear statement. That's what was said earlier about Othniel, who we didn't talk about, the very first judge, and then said about Gideon, we also didn't look at, and is going to be said about Samson, who we will look at, and here it is said of Jephthah, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now, some, some commentators, and for example, the ESV Study Bible asserts that Jephthah wasn't raised up by God, but by men without seeking God's approval. I really can't see it. And the fact that the Spirit of the Lord is poured out upon him at this point is, is incontrovertible. Uh, and the qualities that Jephthah, to my mind, seems to show, uh, these qualities of, of, of being willing despite his history of rejection, this quality of restraint, trying to prevent battle if it can be prevented, and his quality of dependence uh, on God alone. Uh, I think these are fine qualities, and again, they actually echo the things that are true of Jesus. Uh, Jesus, I mean, can you just imagine how restrained Jesus was? <laughs> I mean, Jesus is, is the creator of the universe. At his trial, he said, you know, I could call on legions of angels. He could call upon 10,000 times 10,000 angels, any one of whom could strike the whole Roman army down in one blow. Uh, and he was opposed and brutally finally seized and put on trial and, and scourged and whipped uh, the sort of scourging that men died under. And he was brutally treated and nailed to a cross. And at any point, he could have called on the power of heaven. At any point, he could have struck them all down dead. A huge restraint. And he restrained himself in order that he might achieve our salvation. And his dependence, of course, was always on his father. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, John 5, 19. Tremendous restraint, tremendous dependence, amazing willingness. And those are qualities, in a lesser measure, but a real measure, I think, that Jephthah displays before you get to the vow. So let's come, thirdly, to the fact that he is a deliverer yet severely assaulted and troubled. He is a deliverer. Now, Jephthah's vow has so filled discussions of his life that this point needs some emphasis, that the Bible's headline about Jephthah is that he was a deliverer. He was a savior. Verse 29, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Verse 30, 32, the Lord gave. Verse 32, the Lord gave them into his hands, the Ammonites. Verse 36, his daughter says, the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. Chapter 12, verse 3, uh, Jephthah himself uh, 
refers to the Lord. The Lord gave me victory over them. Uh, and when the scriptures later, outside the book of Judges, reflect on the story of Jephthah, which it does twice, 1 Samuel 12, 11, and Hebrews 11:32, there is not a word about his vow, which fills all our commentaries. But it's all about the salvation the Lord worked through him. 1 Samuel 2.11, the Lord sent Jephthah, lists a number of others, sent Jephthah as one of them, and delivered you out of the hands of your enemies. Hebrews 11.32, Jephthah's name is there among the heroes of faith, who through faith gained what was promised, became powerful in battle, and routed foreign armies. That's the central message about Jephthah. God did use him. God can and does use people despite their imperfections and struggles. That really isn't a surprise, is it? Which hero was ever perfect that God used apart from Christ? There are imperfections marking the lives of every other agent God has ever used. And that's true of you know, Peter and Paul, and certainly true of Luther and Calvin. Uh, it, it's, the closer you get, the more you, you know, when you get out close to somebody, you recognize their frailties, even though they were mightily used. And Jephthah's frailties may be very obvious, uh, but there's no question he was mightily used. And that's very good news for us, because my guess is that you also are an imperfect servant of Christ. And yet God stoops to use people like us. So he is a deliverer. Put that in some capital letters. That's the headline. Yet he was severely assaulted. Now, it's a feature of judges is the spiritual battle. Satan counterattacks after victory is won. We haven't read the story of Gideon, but Gideon won one of the most spectacular victories of all time with 300 men against an innumerable company. But the story doesn't end there. If you read chapters 8 and 9, after the victory, um, they made an ephod. They gave, wanted to give him gifts. They wanted to make him king, and he said no. They, they, they put all sorts of um, special uh, metals together, and they made an ephod. Uh, and they gave it to him, and we read it became a snare to him and his family. And all Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it, chapter 827. So immediately after the victory, you find idolatry entering in through the honoring of Gideon. And then you find that Gideon had innumerable wives and concubine as well. And the, from the concubine was born Abimelech. And after Gideon died, Abimelech murdered 69, his, his 69 half-brothers. There's only one he missed, Jotham. He murders 69 and he, he rules for a period of absolute disaster. And what's happening? Immediately after the victory... Satan counterattacks. There's trouble right after the victory. And it happens again with Jephthah. So where's Jephthah's problems arise? They arise immediately after the victory. Is that coincidental? No. Something's happening. And is it only a story of ancient history? No. It's a sobering reality check. When are you most vulnerable? You are most vulnerable when it seems you've done the job. Let me uh, turn you to a verse in the New Testament that I think is very significant in this regard. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, where Paul is speaking about spiritual battle uh, and being like a, an athlete who goes into strict training. And he makes a personal comment that is very intriguing. Um, he says, I don't fight like a man beating the air. I don't run like a man running aimlessly. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So you can imagine, here is Paul and he is preaching, maybe like in Troas, he preaches all night. And, you know, you've heard Don Carson, but you haven't heard the Apostle Paul. And wow, you know, you'd all turn out to hear Don, uh, but imagine if you had Paul. Uh, and there he's finished his speaking, and everybody wants a, a slice of the Apostle Paul, and the man's disappeared. You know, where is he? Well, he's out the back in the broom covered, 
on his knees. I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Uh, most people who are preachers put all their spiritual energies into the before the preaching. That's when they're on their knees. That's where in the Bible. That's where they're going over their notes. That's where they put the effort. When they've done the job, they're very happy to chat with you and they relax. And that's exactly what Satan knows too. And Paul says, after I have preached to others, I beat my body and make it my slave. Because that's when I am most vulnerable. The sermon is preached, the task is done, and Satan's rubbing his hands. Because now he'll go to work. And that's what he did with Jephthah. So before we simply condemn Jephthah too easily, you need to know that Satan's after you too. And he's ruthless and totally malicious. And where does the attack come from? On Jephthah. You see, who is his big enemy? Well, you read this chapter and you say, the Ammonites are his big enemy. No, they're not. Satan is big enemy. And Satan is after him. And the attack is firstly from within himself. And secondly, from within Israel. The attack is very close at home. Who is your biggest enemy in Christian life and living? My observation would be that God's servants struggle most, firstly, with themselves and, secondly, with other believers. I think that's true. I don't mean you always struggle, but that's where Satan very often puts in his greatest efforts. So let's have a look. The vow, the struggle within himself, verses 30 to 31. Uh, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. He's just about to go to battle. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of my, the door of my house to meet me, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. And he goes and he wins a great victory. Verse 34, when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child, except for her he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you've made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord. I cannot break Jephthah's vow. Matthew Henry, back in 1708, said Jephthah's vow is dark and much in the clouds, which is about as good a comment as you will find on Jephthah's vow. Taking vows seems very strange to us, but it was actually a pretty common part of Old Testament life. In Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those three books, there are 41 references to vow-taking, vows to the Lord made by God's people. Uh, Jacob, Hannah, David, Jonah, they all made vows that are recorded in Scripture. There are 12 references in Psalms to vows as part of a response to the Lord. But why did Jephthah make this vow? He's the only judge who went into battle and made a vow. And I think it is tragic, and I think it was unnecessary. Luther called it foolish and superstitious. He tripped over himself, and one day you will. You will trip over yourself someplace. You will say what you wish you hadn't said. You will do what you wish you hadn't done. Haven't you? Haven't you already? Won't you again? Chances are... Because we're sinners. Because we all have a capacity for misjudgments and sometimes very well-intentioned disasters. Proverbs 20, verse 25, is a trap for a man to dedicate something rashly and only later to consider his vow. Now, a lot of people say a lot of things about Jephthah's vow you can't exactly prove. Many speculate that he is bringing a kind of pagan framework of thinking where the gods had to be negotiated with and coerced. And it is true that the Ammonites and all the peoples around, the gods of the nations that they, Israelites, had been worshipping, they had that kind of, it was a kind of negotiation and a manipulation of, of the deities. Um, there's also an irony here. You see, there was a particular god to whom child, uh, uh, in whose worship child sacrifices were kind of standard. His name was Molech, and he was the god of the Ammonites. So the, the irony is 
that in victory over Ammon, Jephthah acts like an Ammonite. Isn't that tragic? But there's very little explanation of his thinking. And before we immediately stand in judgment on Jephthah, we might need to ask ourselves how much we are shaped by the values around us without realizing how much the thinking of our world affects how we come to the Bible. Now, it is uncertain in the Hebrew, this is one of the several uncertainties about it, if the vow he made uh, in verse uh, 31 actually was framed as anticipating a human sacrifice. The, the, the wording actually indicates an animal sacrifice, but the grammar would allow for a, a person. But the NIV and the ESV both opt for whatever comes out of my house rather than whoever. Uh, others argue that actually he never really did it anyway. Um, they say he must have known, as I'm sure he did, Deuteronomy 12, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. That's the way of the Canaanites because in their worship of their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. And it's a similar verse, Leviticus 18:21, and elsewhere in Deuteronomy. And if you look at the text here, when Jephthah's daughter goes off to lament, she laments that she will never marry, that she is going to die a virgin, which means, of course, she is their own, his only child. The lion of Jephthah dies out with his daughter. And in Israelite thinking, that was a major tragedy, that she is never going to be able to marry. And some people argue that, that actually that's what she laments, not that she's going to die, because she doesn't actually die. He kind of banishes her from the home and it puts her in a situation where she is never married. But the Hebrew of verse 39 is pretty clear. After two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed and she was a virgin. Uh, I think Luther's probably right. One would like to think he didn't sacrifice her, but the text clearly says that he did. Uh, now, the solution is, seems pretty obvious to us. Um, firstly, you don't make rash vows. That has to be the most sensible thing. And if you do, it's a lesser evil to break such a vow than to keep it. Um, and it's interesting in Leviticus 5, the situation that Jephthah's in is kind of anticipated. Leviticus 5 provides for, for sins you do without realizing they're sins at the time, uh, particularly ceremonial uncleanness in Israel. Uh, so it talks about touching an unclean animal you don't realize at the time, and then you do realize, and when you realize, uh, you, you are guilty and have to offer a sacrifice. In that list of things, it includes if a person thoughtlessly, ESV, rashly, which I think is probably a better translation, takes an oath to do anything, whether good or evil, in any matter one might rashly swear about, even though he is unaware of it, that is at the time, in any case, when he learns of it, he will be guilty. When anyone is guilty in any of these ways, he must confess the way he sinned, and as a penalty, bring to the Lord a, a lamb or a goat, in other words, offer sacrifice, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. Now, sadly, Jephthah does not seem to have understood Leviticus 5, verses 2 to 6, where the provision is made for the rash vow taker. But what are we told about? If we stick in, the, in, the, in Judges 11, what does he understand? Well, firstly, we must say uh, that he was distraught. Verse 35, he tears his clothes. He, he says, I'm, you've made me miserable and wretched. There is anguish here. Some people dis think of him as so brutalized by his past that he, you know, he's not that bothered. And I don't think the text brings that out at all. I think he is completely distraught. But secondly, he believed something very strongly and something that in itself was not without nobility. Look at the end of verse 35. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. And you might say to Jephthah, well, why don't you break it? Isn't it better that you break it? And, you know, Jephthah could reel off, I suspect, a list of verses that tell you you mustn't break your vows. Deuteronomy 21, 21, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. 
For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do, because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God. Numbers 30 verse 1, this is what the Lord commands. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word but must do everything he said. Uh, Psalm 15 verse 4, who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who keeps his oath even when it hurts. And he may be entirely wrong, but he is basing what he's doing on an understanding of an important principle that the Old Testament spells out a lot more frequently than what you should do if you do make a rash vow. This principle of, of keeping your vow. And thirdly, his daughter agrees with him. That's the most extraordinary thing. Verse 36, my father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, but grant me this one, one request. It's a remarkable spirit, isn't it? You've given your word to the Lord, do to me as you promised. And after two months, we read, she returned to her father. Where did she learn that submissive spirit? We're so busy being horrified by Jephthah that sometimes we, we don't notice his daughter. But actually, the, from verse 35, it's his daughter to the end of the chapter that's the heart of the, the story. Where did she learn that spirit? It's a very alien spirit to our times, the, the submissive spirit, this submissive. Well, presumably she learned it in her home. Presumably it says something about her mum and her dad. 1 Peter 3, 4 talks of the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's spirit, sight. There's something about Jephthah's daughter in this dark story that Israelites in later generations honored. So we're told that every year, the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate, to honor the memory of the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Now, we may be very sure that Jephthah did the wrong thing. I think he did do the wrong thing. He should never have made the vow, and I think there was provision in the law if you did make such a vow for sacrifice instead. But isn't there some challenge to us? I mean, some people, frankly, are so busy reacting to Jephthah that they don't ask some pretty fundamental questions about themselves. Isn't there some challenge? We feel we've got superior light. We do have superior light. And the question is, are we as obedient to what we know for sure as what Jephthah was? Or do we trim our obedience when it hurts? Because the danger is that we say, oh, tut, tut, he shouldn't have done that. really is awful. And then we're busy compromising when it really comes to the crunch. Because actually we're more in love with going with the flow than going with God. And that's where Satan wants you. And if Jephthah challenges you to go with God rather than with the flow, that's maybe one of the reasons why we're told this story. I mean, is there any point where you will actually obey God anyway at huge cost because you want to obey him. There's a line of tennis, a poem from Tennyson uh, that I have on my wall, and it says this, because right is right, to follow right were wisdom in the scorn of consequence. That, that's quite good, isn't it? Because right is right, to follow right were wisdom in the scorn of consequence. That's the way the Lord Jesus went. And it took him to Calvary. But it was wisdom in the scorn of consequence. And there's one other question that lurks in the background here. That people who recoil from the story never seem to ask. And this is the question. Could God ever ask such a thing as human sacrifice? And even when you ask it, you sort of think, oh, you shouldn't ask that question perhaps. Well... Presumably, Jephthah knew Genesis 22. Because what happened in Genesis 22 was that God told Abraham to take his son, his only son whom he loved, and take him to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And Abraham didn't throw up his hands in horror. He didn't say, there's no way you could ask that of me. Abraham took his son up Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. 
See, it is not true that God never asked human sacrifice. But at the last moment, God intervened. And I don't know. Perhaps that was Jephthah's hope with the knife in hand and no intervention came. God does not in this life always rescue us from our own follies. But consider this. There was a day when there was a sacrifice of a beloved son. There was a day when God did not intervene. There was a day when God's son, both human and divine, was put to death on a cross, a sacrifice for sinners, by whose blood unworthy saints of the Old Testament like Jephthah and of the New Testament like you and me find cleansing and full forgiveness. And I think ultimately we're on level ground with Jephthah, imperfect people, and yet people with faith, sinners who are saved by God's sacrifice human and divine we're not quite done severely assaulted by the struggle within himself also by the struggle within God's people Ephraim chapter 12 verses 1 to 7 as if Jephthah's traumas were not already enough chapter 12 then tells us another tragedy in the wake of victory again it's immediately after the victory and you would have thought all Israel would have been delighted that those wretched Ammonites have finally been dealt with. Uh, but the Ephraimites were not. The Ephraimites were the most substantial tribe the other side of the river. And they come across at this place called Zaphon. And since we read at the end of the story that 40,000 of them were killed, there must have been at least 40,000 of them. So we're not talking about a, a raiding party or a little posse of, of disgruntled men. We're talking about a massive invasion of Ephraimites. Uh, and they have a shocking purpose. I mean, just look. This is the Lord's saviour. And there are Israelites who have been saved. And they say, why? they say to him, why did you go out to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head. We're going to kill you. We're going to kill you. And, I mean, that, that's their purpose. And it's shocking. These are the Israelites who've just been delivered and they're trying to kill the Lord's Savior. And there's a back history here because in chapter 8, after Gideon's victory, the same thing happened. The Ephraimites come out to bitterly contest and complain they weren't called out. And, and in, in Gideon's case, he manages to mollify them. But Jephthah, will you notice, Jephthah tries to satisfy them. He says, we were engaged in a great struggle. I called, you didn't save me. When I saw you wouldn't help, I had to take action. Now, why have you come up today to fight me? He tries to reason, but there's no reasoning with these people. There's a deep, bitter pride. They bitterly, they resent the success they hadn't been part of. They're like Diotrephes in 3 John who love to be first. The Ephraimites love to be first. That's dangerous in Israel. That's dangerous in churches. And they're determined to kill the Savior the Lord has raised up. Now, this lot, these Ephraimites, I'm afraid, are the spiritual ancestors of the people of Nazareth taking God's saviour to throw him off a cliff. Or the crowd in Jerusalem screaming, crucify, crucify. Israelites screaming for the death of God's saviour. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes the severest trials God's servants face are from others who profess to be believers. You just read 1 and 2 Corinthians and the pain of heart that Paul knew over the church in Corinth. And, and you know, you need to know that in advance because some of you may well end up in church leadership and you could be stumbled beyond recall if you do not know in advance that that can happen. When Paul in his last letter writes in, in 2 Timothy, he talks about Demas having deserted him and he talks about the believers in the whole province of Asia. He was deserted by a whole chunk of Christians. We need to know that that can happen. And there's ugly prejudice. Verse 4, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, the half-tribe of Manasseh had stayed the other side of Jordan in the days of Moses. 
That, that's where the Gileadites, that's where Jephthah is operating. And the others had gone over, and, and, and um, the, the Manasseh and Ephraim were the two sons of, of Joseph. They're descended from Joseph, and they became a big tribe of their own. But there was alienation between the ones who stayed the other side of the Jordan, and it had had hundreds of years to kind of brew, and long enough to develop a different pronunciation, as you can see, as the Ephraimites find to their cost. They couldn't cope with Shibboleth. They had to say Sibboleth, and so they betrayed who they were. There's prejudice, but I think there's also judgment. Uh, Jephthah tries to negotiate, but no negotiation is possible. And in the battle, and in the sifting of who's crossing the fords, 42,000 Ephraimites were killed. That's terrible. But it seems to me an act of judgment. It is God's judgment on their spirit. Keller and some others hold this against Jephthah as another nail in the coffin of his reputation. They don't find it difficult to dispose of Jephthah in this fashion. A killer who kills Israel as freely as he does Ammonites. I, I, I really don't think that. I don't think so. I think this is a course set by Ephraim that had a long history and evil within Israel. And after this, the Ephraimites were never again the same problem. I mean, it's a tragedy, tragedy, but God doesn't just, where does judgment begin? Judgment begins in the people of God. And I think this is judgment within Israel. And thus we leave Jephthah. And you close judges thinking perhaps, as many people do, what a grim chap Jephthah was. And, you know, you discover, to your astonishment perhaps, the last word in Jephthah in Scripture is not a sad postscript in Judges 12, but a name in, in honor in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith, a man of faith. Once rejected, so severely assaulted, yet a man who God used as an agent of deliverance for his people. Yes, terrible counterattack of Satan. Yes, deep damage that only heaven's going to undo. But Jephthah is there, and the last word in the Bible is man of faith. And I don't know what people will say about me after my time. But if anybody says, man of faith, I'll be very happy about that, wouldn't you? Dale Raff Davis says, we have a salvation here, but a marred salvation. The writer is suggesting if we seek a perfect salvation, we'll have to look at someone greater than Jephthah. Jephthah reminds us of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, but there is something lacking in the deliverance he could bring. The full and perfect salvation will only come through Emmanuel, and he's our savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you deal with the mess that we're in, and you use people that we would never have expected you to use, and you persevere with us, although we too are sinners who make mistakes and misjudge things and say what we shouldn't. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to take something of the challenge of Jephthah into our lives. That we would be as concerned to be totally committed to doing what is right before God's eyes, rather than trimming our way to win the favor of men. Lord, we pray that you would spare us from the folly of Jephthah too. But we pray that you would help us to honor the Lord Jesus above all, the perfect deliverer who never put a foot wrong or a word wrong. And in him we rejoice this afternoon. Amen.